We come now to 1 Corinthians, the 14th chapter. Now, what we have in this section here concerning spiritual gifts. In chapter 12, we saw the endowment of gifts. And gifts were given to maintain the unity of the church in a diversity, each one having a separate gift, then all together could function as the body function with its many members. The eye just can't do what the ear does, and the ear can't do what the eye does. And each must function in his own way. Now, we are put in by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, and we're put in to exercise a gift. Now, Paul says, as he came to the end of chapter 12, covet earnestly the best gifts, but he says, I show you a more excellent way. And that is by love. Chapter 13 is on the subject of love. And then he concluded that by saying, the greatest of these is love and follow after love. Now, he says, this is the way Follow right on in it, and then, he says, and desire spiritual gifts, but rather that ye may prophesy. Now, he says, you should want spiritual gifts. It'd be, I think, unusual if a Christian didn't. You are to desire spiritual gifts, but here it's spiritualities. Desire the things that are spiritual, but that ye may prophesy. Now, he says that you may speak. The Word of God, speak it simply, speak it intelligently. That is the thing. Now, you see, what he's done is this. He makes a distinction between the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. That's more important than the gifts of the Spirit, actually. When someone came to me, and I think a very sincere person, and says, Dr. McGee, I'm going to pray that you receive the gift of the Spirit. And I said, fine, I appreciate your interest, but pray rather that I may have not the gift, but I may have the fruit of the Spirit. I wish I could see more fruit of the Spirit in the lives of believers and in myself than to see all this business of gifts today, and especially of tongues. I'd like to see more love. That is the thing that is important. And that's actually the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Only the Spirit of God can produce fruit in our lives. Now, we are told here, therefore, but rather that you should prophesy. Now, actually, what Paul's trying to do is to get the Corinthians off of this kick of tongues. What he's saying to them in this whole section is, cool it, brethren. Don't go off into fanaticism or go off into this emotional binge that you're on. Now, he says, hold this thing in right proportion. And he said in 1 Corinthians 13, 8, there be tongues, what did he say? They shall cease, or they shall stop. And that's just like that word stop that is at the highway when I come up to it in my car. And that traffic officer, he told me that S-T-O-P means stop. And I'm afraid a great many folk do not understand what Paul is saying here. Paul says, well, there be tongues, they're going to stop. And it was Dr. Robertson who made the statement, tongues seem to have ceased first of all the gifts. Chrysostom made this statement. He says this whole passage is very obscure, but the obscurity 
arises from our ignorance of the facts described, which, though familiar to those to whom the apostle wrote, have ceased to occur. That is, the need for the things that are mentioned here. Now, it's quite interesting, and we should have this in mind as we enter this chapter. Jesus never spoke in tongues. The apostles, after Pentecost, did not speak in tongues. There is actually no historical record of Paul speaking in tongues, although he acknowledges that he spoke in tongues. Here in verse 18, he says, "...I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all." And it was not an unknown tongue. I did not realize the importance of this and the import of it until I was in Turkey. And I want to say to you that when I was in these seven churches, and Paul obviously preached in all of them, and then you go way out into the interior of Turkey, into Anatolia, and you recognize that all the way from Tarsus, his hometown, he had walked across that section hundreds of miles, and there was tribe after tribe. They had a different tongue. And I often wondered, how in the world did Paul speak to them? Just as they spoke, my friend, on the day of Pentecost, every man heard them speaking in his own tongue. And Paul says, if you want tongues, he says, go out on the mission field and start speaking in the language of these people. Now, today, God has raised up certain organizations like Wycliffe, and there are other organizations that are translating the Bible into all of these tongues today. And that, my friend, is the greatest tongues movement that I know anything about. Now, Paul was caught up to the third heaven. He tells us he heard unspeakable words. Now, I don't think they were unknown words. They were just words that he was not permitted to speak. Tongues are not a rapturous, ecstatic, mysterious language. It's not a mixed-up medley of rhapsody. Tongues were a foreign language, as it was on the day of Pentecost. That is our guideline, of course. Now, we have the extension here of the love chapter. Follow after love. Desire spiritual gifts, but rather that ye may prophesy. For he that speaketh in not an unknown, that's in italics. Let's leave it out. For he that speaketh in a tongue speaketh not unto man, but unto God, for no man understandeth him, howbeit in the Spirit he speaketh mysteries. Now, nobody there will understand him, and he therefore is not to speak in an unknown tongue. That is, he's not to do that unless there's somebody there that can interpret. And we'll see that in just a moment. There'd have to be somebody there to interpret. Now, what we have here is this emphasis that he puts on actually three gifts in this chapter. Prophecy, tongues, and the interpretation of tongues. Have you ever noticed that there's very little reference in the Bible to tongues except in these three chapters we have here? On the day of Pentecost, we know what that was, each man speaking in the tongue that was understood. It was also in the home of Cornelius, and that's in the 10th of Acts, and also in the 19th of Acts, when Paul arrived in Ephesus. And we find, therefore, that tongues actually was the institution of the dispensation of grace. Every time it was used, was used in that connection. You have the day of Pentecost, when it went to the nation Israel, 
the home of Cornelius, the opening of the gospel to the Gentile. Then in Ephesus, you see it moving out to the world. And so we have these three instances. Now, will you notice, he says, For he that speaketh in a tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God, because no man understandeth. Howbeit, in the Spirit he speaketh mysteries, that is, he doesn't understand it, but he that prophesieth speaketh unto man to edification and exhortation and comfort. Now, Paul's emphasizing the gift of prophecy. He said, don't go in for the unknown thing that you delight in, and they were delighting in it in Corinth. He said, when you are speaking or teaching the Word of God, that's for edification and for comfort and for exhortation. Now, he says, he that speaketh in a tongue edifieth himself. He builds up himself, but he that prophesieth edifieth the church. You see, the tongue, if it's just exercise for the individual, it's a selfish sort of a gift. But when you prophesy, teach, you're edifying the church. Now, he says, I would that you all spake with tongues, but rather that you prophesy. Now, the important thing is not a tongues meeting, but a Bible study. That's more important. Paul says that. For greater is he that prophesieth, that is, teaches the word of God, than he that speaketh with tongues, except he interpret that the church may receive edify. Now, the important thing is, and you don't hear that emphasized today, no one ought to speak in tongue unless there's somebody there to interpret. Now, brethren, if I come unto you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you except I shall speak to you either by revelation or by knowledge or by prophesying or by doctrine. If I don't come making sense, Paul says, what's the use of me coming? And even things without life, giving sound, whether pipe or harp, except they give a distinction in the sounds, how shall it be known what is pipe or harp? Why, actually, I've often thought that I could really be a musician if I could do it with music what the unknown tongue folk do with the English language, or they don't do with it, I probably should say. Well, I could just toot away on a horn. But even a lifeless instrument like that, it's to have meaning in this world. And he says, verse 8, For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to the battle? And today we need a clear-cut presentation of the gospel, friends. That's very important. Now he says, So likewise ye, except ye utter by the tongue words easy to be understood, how shall it be known what is spoken? For ye shall speak into the air. Paul says, let's get off this kick. Let's start making sense, if you don't mind. Therefore, he says, if I know not the meaning of the voice, I shall be unto him that speaketh a barbarian. And he that speaketh shall be a barbarian unto me. And you don't want to be a barbarian if you're a missionary. You want to make sense. Even so ye, for as much as ye are zealous of spiritual, spiritualities, seek that ye may excel to the edifying of the church. Now, the important thing is, does this edify the church? Does this build up believers? Wherefore, let him that speaketh in a tongue Pray that he may interpret. If he can't interpret, then there ought to be somebody else there with that gift. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prayeth, but my understanding is unfruitful. 
And that, my friend, is the answer to those who say, well, this is for private devotions. You don't make sense. Now, don't tell me that you get a spiritual lift out of it. If you do, it's merely psychological. It couldn't be of the Holy Spirit. Paul says that. Your understanding is unfruitful. What is it then? I will pray with the Spirit. I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I'll sing with the understanding also. Else when thou shalt bless with the Spirit, how shall he that occupieth the room of the unlearned say, Amen, at thy giving of thanks, seeing he understandeth not what you say? In other words, say something that somebody can say amen to. For thou verily givest thanks well, but the other is not edified. I thank my God, I speak with tongues more than y'all. Now, I think Paul means that he, as a missionary, had spoken in at least a dozen different tongues, and that could probably be multiplied by four or five. Now, he says, yet in the church, I'd rather speak five words with my understanding that by my voice... I might teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. Paul said, now when I'm out on the mission field, I go to a tribe. I don't understand the language. They don't understand me. I speak in a tongue. I make sense to them, but not to myself. Now he says, but in the church where they're believers and we understand the same language, I want to speak in a tongue we all understand. Brethren, be not children in understanding. Now, you see, he's rubbing it into the Corinthians again. He says, you're carnal, you're babes in Christ. Now, he says, don't be children. Howbeit in malice be ye children, but in understanding be men. In the law it's written with men of other tongues and other lips, will I speak unto this people. And yet for all that will they not hear me, saith the Lord. Now, you see... He does mean a language that's understood. I'm going to speak to another people in their tongue. Wherefore, tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. But prophesying serveth not for them that believe not, but for them which believe. Now, what he's saying is simply this. He said, when I went out to the mission field and I went in, for instance, to the city, let's say, Antioch of Pisidia, they were speaking a different language. Paul says, I spoke to them in their tongue, and they didn't believe. But when I spoke to them in their tongue, they believed. Now, he says, when I meet here in the land of Israel, I speak in a tongue I know, and everybody else knows. Therefore, I'm prophesying. That is, I'm teaching the Word of God. Now, he says, if therefore the whole church be come together into one place and all speak with tongues... And there come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers. Will they not say that you're mad? And I'll let you handle that one, friend. You don't want the outside world to think you're mad. If there's one thing that we need today is intelligence in this world, this scientific world that we live in, in a world today that is majoring in sophistication. We today ought to present a logical, a meaningful message that is understood. Because if we don't, they'll think we're mad. But if all prophesy, and there come in one that believeth not unlearned, he's convinced of all, he's judged of all, and thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest. 
And in other words, if you preach the word of God and he comes under conviction, he'll be converted. Now, verse 26, how is it then, brethren, when you come together, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation, let all things be done unto edify. Now, if you're going to have a tongue, let's have it make sense. Let an interpreter be there and let it be something that makes sense. A friend of mine, I say he was a friend of mine, he was actually a student of mine. He told me about going to a tongues meeting. And he had been a Roman Catholic, and he knew certain of the ritual in Latin. And he gave part of the Mass in Latin and sat down. And another man rose up. He said, I want to interpret. He interpreted. He went on to say this, that, and the other thing. And so this fellow got up, and he says, I just want you to know that that's not what I said. I gave you the Latin mass, and he told them what he had said in it. And before he could finish, the ushers were there, and they hustled him out of the place, told him not to come back. And I don't blame them for that. I think he was wrong in doing that. But the important thing is, the thing has to make sense, you see. If any man speak in a tongue, let it be by two, by the most by three, and that by course, and let one interpret. Now, if a man wants to speak in tongues today, because he's going to say up here, forbid not to speak in tongues, and I'm not going to forbid if you want to do it. But you make sure an interpreter's there, and make sure the thing makes sense. If it's just a lot of lollipop, then I want to say that it's no good. That's not the way the Spirit of God moves. He makes sense. And if there be no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Now, if he insists on it, if he wants to have a nice little to-do with himself, why, let him go over to himself. And I'll not object to that either. Let the prophets speak two or three and let the other judge. If anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let the first hold his peace. Now, evidently, there were prophets in the church in that day that could speak prophecies. The daughters of Agabus, there were others. Well, we don't have them about today. Even the weatherman doesn't do very well in our area about predicting the weather for the future. Verse 31, For ye may all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be comforted. Now, everyone can have something to say about the Word of God. I've been greatly blessed by statements that certain folk have made in testimony meetings. It blessed my heart. Now he says, The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in the churches of the saints. Now he says, Let your women keep silence in the churches. Now what's he talking about? Tongues. He doesn't say a woman's not to speak in church, but she's not to speak in tongues in the church. My friend, if you take the women out of the tongues movement, it would die overnight. Now, you say that's not nice to say. I know it's not nice, but it's true, my friend. For it's not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. Now, a woman is to speak in church. He doesn't say she's not to. He says she's not to speak in tongues. Now, if they will learn anything, let them ask their husband at home, for it's a shame for a woman to speak in the church, that is, in tongues. What? Came the word of God out from you, or came it unto you only? Now, it came to you, of course. Now, if any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, 
let him acknowledge that the things I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. Now, that's the real test. If a man now today says that he's a prophet or he's spiritual, that he can speak in tongues, let him acknowledge now what Paul is saying here is a commandment of the Lord. But if any man be ignorant, let him be ignorant. Wherefore, brethren, covet to prophesy and forbid not to speak with tongues. I won't forbid it, but it must be according to what Paul says here. Wherefore, brethren, covet to prophesy. Now, he says, covet the best gifts. Evidently, teaching the Word of God is one of the better ones. And I thank God for that. Let all things be done decently and in order. That's a great principle. And my experience has been, I've attended in the South a tongues meetings, and I must confess that I couldn't see any rhyme nor reason in the entire service. It was all hopeless confusion, wasn't even organized confusion. It was hopeless confusion. Now, Paul says that's not the way that the things of God should be carried on. Now, that brings us to the end of this section. And maybe you're delighted that we're through with this. And I trust if you disagree with me, friends, you'll not fall out with me, but that you'll search this passage. And if I'm wrong, you pray for me. And now we are going to come to the third and the last section of this that has to do with spiritualities. And you know what the greatest spirituality of all is? Is the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our resurrection, if we do not live until the Lord comes, our resurrection at the rapture of Christ. That is the highest spirituality of all. And I wish we could major more in the resurrection. The gospel. What is the gospel? Paul will make it very clear. Now, we've come to a chapter that can be classified as one of the most important and crucial chapters of the Bible. If you would pick out ten of the greatest chapters of the Bible, which men have done constantly from the beginning of the Christian era, you'll find that 1 Corinthians 15 occurs in practically all of those lists. It's that important. It's so important that actually it answers really the very first heresy of the church, which was a denial of the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is coming in this chapter to the third great spirituality. Now, you will recall in the first part, he dealt with carnalities. He dealt with these things that so important to us today. My, we just feel like you've got to have a series of lectures on sex today. And certainly divisions mark the church today, the little sects, the little cliques, the little groups that are in churches today. And I have a letter from a dear lady that rebukes me for making a statement some time ago that the meanest people I've ever met were in the church, not out of the church. Now, may I say, I hold to that statement, but I probably should have added another statement and said the sweetest, the most wonderful people I've ever met are in the church also. But the reason I mention that is because 
The meanest people ought not to be there by any means at all. But Paul's writing, dealing with those things. They will go into law one with another, going into court, airing the skeletons in the closet, and they shouldn't have done that. And then we have them engrossed in problems that concern divorce. And all of these little things today, the eating of meat, and whether you get a haircut or not, a man should, and whether a woman should wear a hat to church or not. Those are things that seem very trivial, and yet they seem so important to us today, and they are the things we discuss today. But how about the gifts of the Spirit? That was a spirituality, and Paul talked about that, and how wonderful it was to know, friends, that every believer today has a gift. I can't think of anything more thrilling than that. I talked to a young man, and he has long hair, and very candidly, he looks like an Airedale dog, the way the boy dresses. He's a fine boy in many ways. I asked him why he did that. Well, it's protest, of course, and it's dress. All of that indicate that. But actually, down underneath all of it is the fact that he very frankly said he saw no purpose in life at all. Now, can you think of anything more wonderful today than to know that God's given you a gift if you're a Christian and that you are to function in this world and not only function in this world, my friend, You are to be a partner with Jesus Christ in the tremendous enterprise of making him known. And what a challenge it is to young people today to find out what their gift is and exercises. That gives purpose to life. And that's been left out today, unfortunately, by the church and by the home. And as a result, the young people go off in this direction And candidly, I don't blame them. I'm not blaming that young fellow at all, which I didn't. I have great sympathy for him. And then may I say that there was that great love chapter, that things are to be exercised in love, and love is a gift of the Holy Spirit. You can't work up love down here. It's only the fruit of the Holy Spirit, I should say, not a gift. The gift is one thing, fruit is another. And we need the fruit today, I think, above everything else in the Christian life. Now we come to the third great spirituality, and that's the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and our resurrection. The glory of the Christian faith is that it never views life as ending with death or that this life is all. It always looks to the sunrise. It never looks at the sunset. It looks out yonder into eternity. And what a hope it offers. And may I say that's something else that gives purpose to life. I expect to live in eternity. And I'm not in a hurry to get there, I can assure you that. I want to stay in this life as long as I can, because I think down here is where you do your service. And I think this is preparation. And I think that what you do here will have to do with your reward. So I want to get a few things on my side of the ledger. Don't think I've got much, but I would like to get a few things there. That song, Will There Be Any Stars in My Crown, they don't sing that anymore. Have you noticed that? Why? Because 
They're not looking at stars in the crown. They're trying to be a star down here. <laughs> My friend, oh, that we might get this tremendous view that the resurrection of the Lord Jesus should give to the believer today. And that is something that gives purpose to life. You see, we've lost sight of the essentials, and we've got our mind on incidentals today. And that, of course, just adds up to one tragedy after another, even among professing Christians today. Now, as we come to this chapter here, as we've said, this chapter actually deals with the gospel. And it shows that the most important part of the gospel is the resurrection of Christ. Without it, everything else, frankly, is meaningless, even the death of Christ. It's the resurrection. He was delivered for our offenses. He was raised for our justification. In his death, he subtracted my sin. But in his resurrection, he gave me, may I say to you, he gave me a sure, abundant entrance into heaven. And I stand in his righteousness. He's delivered for our offenses, raised for our justification, or for our righteousness. Now, I think that probably as we get into this chapter, might be well for us to define and delineate very sharply the meaning of the resurrection. The resurrection is not spiritual. It's physical. The word is anastasis necron. That means the standing up of a corpse. That's the language that's used. That means these bodies of ours are to be raised. And we're going to see, Paul will define what he means by the resurrection. The resurrection in Scripture always refers to the body. Anastasis means the standing up. Histomy to stand, ana, up. The standing up of the body. It can't be spiritual. C.S. Lewis, that brilliant Oxford Don, ridiculed the liberals in England in his day. He asked the question when they talked about the resurrection being spiritual. He says, what position does a spirit get in when it stands up? And that, my friend, is something for the liberal to kick around for a little while and see if he can come up with an answer to that one. Now, may I say that we want to get into this, and we want to note that in Corinth of that day and in the Roman world of that day, there were actually three philosophies concerning death and life after death. There was Stoicism, and Stoicism taught that the soul merged into deity at death, and there was therefore the destruction of the personality. That actually makes of resurrection a non-entity. And then there was the Epicurean philosophy. It was materialistic. There was no existence beyond death in their teaching. And then there was Platonism. Platonism taught the immortality of the soul, more or less like transmigration. You find that teaching in India. You find it today in Platonism, and you find it in some of the cults today. It denied the bodily resurrection. That's the reason when Paul mentioned in Athens... The resurrection, they thought that he was talking about a new God. And today, we need to understand very clearly that Paul's not talking about spiritual resurrection. The soul does not die. The minute that a body dies, 
The person goes somewhere. If he's a child of God, it's absent from the body, present with the Lord. If he's not, then he goes to the place of torment. Our Lord labeled it that. I didn't. Now, will you notice, and I have a division. I don't exactly follow it, by the way, at this point. We have here in chapter 15 concerning the gospel. We have, first of all, the prominence of the resurrection in the gospel, and then proofs of the resurrection. And actually, what we have here is four proofs, really, of the resurrection in the prominence of the gospel. First of all, Paul says here that it's part of the gospel, and there's no gospel without the resurrection. As Dr. Machen put it, Christianity does not rest on a set of ideas or a creed, but upon facts. The gospel is not the Sermon on the Mount. It's not the Ten Commandments. The gospel is a series of facts concerning a person. That person is Christ. Listen to Paul. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. That answers the question of whether Paul is the one who originated the gospel. He did not. He said, I received this. Where did he receive it? He received it out yonder in that Arabian desert, because that's where the Lord took him and taught him. And he did not know the Lord Jesus is back from the dead. In fact, he didn't believe it on the Damascus road, and he asked the question, Who art thou, Lord? He didn't dream it was Jesus at all. Now he says, I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received. Now, Paul says he'd preach the gospel to them. Now, what is that gospel that he preached to them? Because he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you. What is it? Well, he says, I delivered unto you first of all that which also I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, there's something here that's very important. First of all, the great proof is that it's part of the gospel. There's no gospel without the resurrection. And it concerns the death of the Lord Jesus. He died for our sin. He was buried. He rose again the third day. Those are the facts. And, my friend, there's no gospel apart from those facts. That's what the gospel is. It's what Jesus did for you and for me. Now, this is gospel. It's good news. Now, if you suppose you'd come to me today and you'd say, Preacher, I've been thinking it over, and I'm interested in you, and I'd like to see you become a millionaire. And I'd say, well, that would be nice. And you'd say, now, I have a plan here. If you'll get a job, and you'll be able to work, and you'll be able to make so much, and in about a thousand years, you'd be worth a million dollars. Now, I want to say to you, friends, as much as I could use, actually, a million dollars. And I think I could use it in the Lord's work. And I'd use it on radio. I think that's the greatest avenue today for getting out the Word. And I could use it. And I'd thank you for it. And I'd say, that's great. But I don't get the point that's good news. If you think that by me working, I can make a million dollars, you're wrong. 
that's not good news. In fact, it's bad news. Now, suppose, though, you come to me and you tell me, you know, there was a friend of yours, and he loved you, and he made a million dollars, and he died, and he's left you the million dollars. You think that would be good news? My friend, that would be good news, you see. Now, the gospel is what Jesus Christ has done for me, done for you. He died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. He's buried, he rose again the third day. Now, he died. That's a historical fact. Very few would deny that. He was buried. I like that put in there. Somebody says, why is that so important? That means, friends, that he didn't disappear. That doesn't mean he ran off somewhere. That means that they had his body. And this man, Nicodemus, and Joseph of Arimathea, and the others that saw him crucified, they knew who it was. It was Jesus. They buried him. May I say to you that that is important. He died. That confirms his death. Now, it says he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. And he rose again. That's part of it. <laughs> that tomb was empty. And that's important to see. That means that the gospel is that Jesus died, buried, rose again. That's the first proof. The second is the experience of the Corinthians. Let me read this again. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved. If ye keep in memory... What I preached unto you, unless you believed in vain. That is, unless it was empty faith. And there's that kind of faith, of course. But he says, by which you're saved. The church is the proof of it. Why, do you know those men were scattered? And there happened to be 11 men in Jerusalem or in its environs that if Jesus was dead, they didn't want the body out of the grave. They wanted to stay there. They were in enough trouble. And these men were scattered, discouraged, ready to go back to fishing. And what happened? Word came that he was back from the dead. <laughs> May I say that revolutionized them. That brought into existence the church. And for 1,900 years, there have been millions of people that say he's back from the dead. You can't explain the church apart from the resurrection. I'm saved by the death, resurrection of Jesus. May I say to you, without his resurrection, I'd have no gospel. I'd have no living Christ today. I'd have no Savior. May I say that's the second great proof. And the third is, I didn't emphasize this a moment ago, but did you notice it says, I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how the Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he also buried, that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. What Scriptures? Old Testament, by the way. I'd love to have been with Paul the Apostle when he arrived over in Europe, went to Philippi, Thessalonica, then down to Athens, then on over to Corinth. I think he had with him a parchment, and it was the Old Testament. And... I think that when he went into the synagogue, 
and he mentioned the death of the Lord Jesus, they said, why, this is not in our scriptures at all. I think he turned back to the book of Genesis, and he said, I'd like to tell you about the offering of Isaac and how Abraham received him from the dead. He was ready to kill a boy. And that God spared not his own son, but delivered him up freely for us all. But he did spare Abraham's son. And he says that's in the 22nd chapter of Genesis. Then I think he turned over to all five of those offerings in Leviticus. Then I think he turned to the 22nd Psalm and showed them the crucifixion of Christ. Then he turned to the 53rd of Isaiah and in many other passages. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. This was the fulfillment of Scriptures. My friend, it's very hard to gainsay that argument, may I say to you. The expectation of the Old Testament. This life is not all. Those that say today, I do not believe in a here after religion, but a here and now. I like them both. I have a here and now religion. I also have a hereafter religion. Now, the fourth proof that we have here are the witnesses. And you can't get around witnesses. Any lawyer that went to court today would love to have this many witnesses. If he did, he'd win his case. I don't care what it was. Verse 5, And that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. Mention Cephas first. He appeared to Cephas privately. You say, what took place? None of my business, and I guess it's none of yours either. He appeared to Cephas. After all, he denied him. He had to get things straightened out. You see, our Lord was in the foot-washing business. He was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. And somebody says then of the twelve, who are we talking about? We're talking about ten men. He's appeared to Cephas privately, and then he appeared to the ten. But they've been called the twelve, because when they're all put together, and Paul joins them, you have the twelve. After that, he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto the present, but some have fallen asleep. Five hundred saw him at one time. I think it is up yonder in Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee somewhere. You remember he said to them, I will meet you in Galilee. And I think as these men moved up through the country, they said, where are you going? Jesus died. Are you going back to fishing? No, we're going up there to meet him. He's back from the dead. And I think there were 500 followers of him that were up there to see him at one time. Now, will you notice, after that he was seen a James probably a private interview, and then of all the apostles. But last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. Paul says, I saw him. My friend, it's very difficult to answer a man who saw it, especially if you didn't see it. Very difficult. These are the witnesses. Here are the four proofs that Paul gives us right here at the beginning of the resurrection. Now, let me come to our study again today, and this chapter is so remarkable. 
We've seen part of the gospel here. Paul says, I make known unto you emphatically the good news that Christ died. He was buried. He didn't vanish or disappear. The body was placed in a tomb. Now, what else could be raised from the dead? He hath been raised. He rose again. And Jesus lives today. Now, these are the historical facts. And the gospel's not theories, not ideas, not a religion. The resurrection is part of the gospel, and this is what Paul preached. Now, again, this was the experience of the Corinthians. Now, the gospel is objective. Experience is subjective. He said, ye received it. Now, what does it mean to receive Christ? Well, John says in John 1, 11 and 12, He came unto his own, his own received him not. But to as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become the sons of God, even to those that don't do any more nor less than just simply believe in his name. What does it mean to receive Christ? He says, here yeah, they received it. it, means to believe on his name. Now, he says to them here that wherein ye stand, that's their present state. Where do you stand today? Standing today in a living faith and a living Savior. And now he says to them, you're saved. Now, the gospel does not save in the sense that it's just a head knowledge and it's sort of, you know, nodding to these facts. It's not the efficient and final cause. Christ saves. Somebody says it's faith in Christ. Absolutely. But it's through the gospel, by means of these facts, and you accept them, then you've received Christ and you're saved. Our Spurgeon put it, it's not thy joy in Christ that saves thee. It's not thy hope in Christ that saves thee. It's Christ. And it's not even thy faith in Christ, though that be the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merit that saves. And we're saved now. He says, this is what we preached unto you. You received it. You stand in it. And you're saved. But he says, unless you believed in vain, and that means you believed without a cause. Your faith does not rest upon the facts. There's no effect. It's not genuine conversion. You see, this idea that faith has some merit in it, it doesn't. It's who you believe. That's important. And we have here, therefore, the fact that they have trusted a Savior who died, was buried, and rose again. Now he says there's some witnesses to that. And also, there is the fulfillment of Scripture. They did it according to the Scripture. And my, how wonderful that was. You can go through the Scripture again and again. That was Enoch. He walked with God. He didn't die. God took him. What a hope. One of these days... I'm going to be walking. That is, if the Lord will come in my lifetime, I don't know that he will. But if he does, I'll be walking somewhere. <laughs> and then I'll take a step on this earth, and the next step I take, they'll be in his presence. What a thrill. You tell me that doesn't give purpose and direction to life? And there's so many passages that teach the resurrection of Christ in the Old Testament. Psalm 16, Isaiah 25. May I say there was Psalm 22 that we looked at in Isaiah 53. They all teach it. And the Mosaic system, a sacrificial system, the death of the animal and the blood and the great day of atonement, 
with the two goats. One was delivered for our offenses, the other raised for our justification. And in the ark there was Aaron's rod that budded. And then we have the book of Jonah that teaches resurrection. And the Old Testament closes, he's going to send Elijah before that great day. Then there were these witnesses, Cephas, the twelve, the five hundred, James, all the apostles, then Paul. Paul says he's born out of due season. That is, not a late birth, he's an abortion. He's a premature birth. He's a picture that remnant's going to be saved after the church is removed. Now, Paul says, so we preached, and so you believe. And he says here, after giving a word concerning himself, he says, I'm the least of the apostles. I don't think so. And somebody says, you believe the Bible, don't you? Yes, but Paul's very modest here. I'm the least of the apostles. And when Paul said that, that was an honest statement. And the inspiration guarantees that that's a statement came from his heart. But you see, my heart says, Paul, you are a great one. That I'm not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He considered himself the chief of sinners. But he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. It wasn't an empty thing. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Paul apparently was the hardest worker of any of the apostles. But very candidly, he said it was the grace of God that enabled him to do it. Verse 11, therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach and so ye believe. Now, this is the gospel. And today, I don't want to be ugly, but I'm weary today. Oh, I have had it up to here, and I'm pulling my hand right above my nose, right my eyes. I've had it up to here. I'm tired of men talking about being Christians and denying the facts of the gospel. You are something else, but you're not a Christian. You deny the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. You have a perfect right to deny him. You have no right to call yourself a Christian. And that's not my statement. That's what Paul is trying to tell us here. So we preach, and so ye believe. Now he says, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, I'll say some among you that there's no resurrection of the dead. Now some of these people, you see, with the background of Stoicism, Epicurean philosophy, and Platonism. These people, they were denying the resurrection. It wasn't specifically the resurrection of Christ. They were denying the resurrection. Now, Paul has a series of ifs. This little book I've got on the empty tomb, I have a message in there, a whole chapter on if. If Christ be not raised. Now, Paul faced the fact now, don't hide your head like an ostrich under the sand. Today, Christian friends say, well, now, we can't be sure about this. Therefore, let's not say too much about it. Let's walk as if we're walking on eggshells. My friend, I'm on a foundation. That foundation is the rock. That rock is Christ Jesus. He came back from the dead. Now, do you want to face up to it? If Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, I'll say some of you that there is no resurrection of the dead. Now, let's face it, there's no resurrection of the dead. Granted that that's true, but if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? They both are linked together. 
And it's on the basis of the resurrection of Christ. Paul is going to say here he's the first fruits. That means we're going to have a Pentecost. And Pentecost will be later. That'll be, my friend, when he comes. The church, it began on a Pentecost, and when it leaves this earth, it's Pentecost again. He's the first fruits, and afterward those are the Christ that is coming. Now he says, verse 14, And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Now, I do not know what church you belong to, and you may belong to a liberal church, and many of them deny that Christ is raised from the dead. Now, if Christ is not risen, that means bodily, our preaching is vain, and your faith is also vain. My friend, you just, well, drop your church memberships, no good, if Christ be not raised from the dead. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God. That means that these men were liars. Because we've testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. Now, if there's no resurrection, Christ is not raised. And if Christ be not raised, then these men were false witnesses. And here is something for you to think over. Have you ever noticed that men do not die for a lie? That is, they died for a lie, but they thought it was the truth. Actually, millions of men died for Hitler. They believed in him. May I say to you that there have been millions that died for Jesus Christ. And men don't die for what they know is a lie. These men said they saw him, and they died for that. Were they right or were they wrong? I'll let you decide that. Men do not die for what they know is a lie. Now, will you listen? Verse 16, For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, you're yet in your sins. You're a lost sinner, hell-doomed sinner. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ to perish. Then all these millions of people of the past, they perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're of all men most miserable. May I say to you that I think Christianity is here and now a religion. Paul makes that clear in the fifth of Romans. But it's also hereafter religion. And if Christ be not raised, may I say to you, we're about the most miserable people there are in this world today. And we're not. <laughs> we're rejoicing. But thank God that ends the if. Will you face it? Go through. Be logical in your ifing about this matter. And the only alternative is the resurrection of Christ. That's the only logical position you could take. That Christ is raised from the dead. These are the things you have to say if you say Christ is not raised from the dead. So, I want to join Paul in verse 20 and say, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. Christ is the first fruits. Now, that feast of first fruits was fulfilled in the resurrection of Christ. And then Pentecost came along 50 days later. Now, Christ is back from the dead in a glorified body, and he's the only one up to this morning. Now, in view of that, we're waiting for Pentecost. A brother said to me some time ago, and he's a Pentecostal brother, and he's a friend of mine. He said, you know, Brother McGee, I'm expecting a Pentecost. 
I really shocked him. I said, I'm looking for Pentecost too. Oh, he said, you don't mean it. Oh, I said, I don't mean it like you mean it. You think it. You're going to repeat it down here. You won't repeat it down here. But when he comes, that's going to be Pentecost. I tell you, friends, that's when he takes his church out of this world. He's the first fruit. Afterward, those that are Christ that is coming. How wonderful it is. Christ is risen from the dead, and he's the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, that's Adam, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. In Adam all die. And that's the proof you're in the family of Adam, is you're going to die if the Lord tarries. Even so in Christ shall all be made alive. That is, all that are in Christ will be made alive. But every man in his own order. Now, there's not a general resurrection day. The interesting thing is that the Reformers recovered a great deal of Bible truth. They didn't recover it all. And I think we are living in a day when we're seeing a great many things develop, and one of them is eschatology, the doctrine of last things, that is, prophecy. But in times when great truths are being developed, there's a lot of heresy and a lot of nutty things being said. There were a lot of things being said about the person of Christ, the inspiration of Scriptures in those early days. That's not true. There's a lot of false teaching about prophecy. And again, I seem to have a lot of hang-ups. May I say I have another one? And that is, I do not like this idea today of teaching Revelation on radio or any other place, and you haven't taught any other book. There are 65 books that come before Revelation. Now, we're going to teach it in this five-year program, but we will have covered 65 books. Then we're going to take up the 66. Now, prophecy is important, but it's not everything. And it is being developed in these days, and it needs to be developed very carefully, by the way. Now, will you notice, as he moves on down into this particular section here, he says, "...but every man in his own order, Christ the first fruit, afterward they that are Christ that is coming." Coming for what? For his church, my friend. Now, then cometh the end. End of what? End of the age. And how will the age end? Well, there'll come a great tribulation. Then there is going to be a millennial kingdom here on the earth. Satan will be released again. And then he'll come to this earth and establish his kingdom forever, the eternal kingdom. Actually, the eternal kingdom is a projection in a way of the millennial kingdom. Only the millennial kingdom is a time of trial. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God. When is that? That's the end of the millennial kingdom. Even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and authority and power. That means the millennial reign of Christ. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. That'll be Satan. Then the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And I'll be glad when we get rid of that fellow. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it's manifest that he's accepted, which did put all things under him. That Christ is not subject to God. But wait a minute. What does the next verse say? When all things shall be subdued unto him, 
Then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things unto him, that God may be all in all. What does that mean? It means simply this, that when he completes the millennial reign here upon this earth, and then when he established the eternal reign, I think he's going to turn it over to David down here and the saints of the church. And we may rule by proxy, but we may not during the eternal reign. I think it'll be turned over to David. And then he returns back to his place in the Godhead, where he was at the beginning, that God might be all in all. Then we are told here, else what shall they do or accomplish which are baptized for the dead if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? Now, what have we said before that the word baptism means? It means identification. And he's not talking about water baptism at all. The one baptism is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that we know anything about. But Paul now is using the word baptize in an altogether different way. Notice what he says. Else what shall they accomplish which are baptized for the dead, if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then identified for the dead? And now listen to him. Why stand we in jeopardy every hour? I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, I die daily. Now, Paul says that if Christ be not raised from the dead, and now that he's raised from the dead, we were identified with him, he says in the fifth of Romans, baptized into his death. We've been raised now in newness of life, and we're baptized into a living Christ today. We know him no longer after the flesh. We're joined to a living Christ. Now, if that's not true, and we're not baptized to him, that is, identified with him, then we're pretty foolish to make the sacrifices we've made down here and stand in jeopardy every hour, Paul says. Why, he says, I die daily. I am in danger of death constantly for Christ's sake. Now he says, if after the manner of man I fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage it me if the dead rise not? That is, why should I be put in a lion's cave if Christ didn't rise from the dead? I'm identified, I'm baptized into his death, identified as a dead man because I'm joined to a living Christ. That's what he's talking about here. And let's don't bring it down to some little simple service that would be practically meaningless. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now, he says, the reason I'm identified as a dead man is because of that. Now, if Christ be not risen, then I ought to adopt the hedonistic philosophy of the Epicureans and say, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Now, he says, be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. You get the wrong information, you're going to act wrong. Awake to righteousness and sin not. For some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Verse 35. But some man will say, how are the dead raised up? Two questions are here, the how and the what. And we need to back up and look at this a moment. Men fail to distinguish the difference between the resurrection of the body and the immortality of the soul. Plato and Cicero, they argue for the immortality of the soul. 
Now, Paul is arguing for the resurrection of the body. The Sadducees, they denied any life after death. And Christ answered them. He says, he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of the living and not of the dead. And Paul answered those who denied the resurrection of the body. He answered it, as we've seen, in the resurrection of Christ. His body was raised up. Now, how can a body that dies and a body that's raised up be the same? Well, Paul says nature demonstrates that they are not identical. They are the same, but not identical. The dead are raised up with what body? Well, the bodies change elements every eight years. Our bodies, we're told, change the elements. And the answer to the first question, the how here, that, Just as a grain of wheat falls into the ground, it comes up. Now, in verse 36, Paul is very severe. Thou foolish one, the question now is how? Thou foolish one, that which thou sowest is not quickened except to die. He says, if you only had sense enough to see it, you'd see that these seed, there's a dissolution, but there's a continuity. It's not impossible. It's a mystery. And then he comes to this, what is death? Well, death is not of the spirit or the personality. The real you goes on to be with the Lord if you're a child of God. But the body disintegrates. Death means a separation of the body from the person, from the individual. The body disintegrates, decays, destroyed. Dust to dust and ashes to ashes. That's the body. Now... Paul's going to answer the second question, what body is raised up? And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be, but bare grain it may chance of wheat, of some other. And the illustration is of grain. Christ is the first fruits. We're coming along later. We're waiting for the rapture of the church when he takes the church out of the world. If we're dead at that time, we'll be raised up. And then if we are living, we'll be caught up and changed. And the seed, you see, does not provide a new body, neither does the sower. God provides it. That's what Paul is saying here. That which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be, but by grain it may chance of wheat or some other grain, but God giveth it a body as it has pleased him, and to every seed his own. You sow seed in the ground, that little seed dies. But lo and behold, up here at the top, there's little seeds just like it. In fact, it's back up there, only it's multiplied itself. Now, the body is sown, it'll be raised like that in newness of life. He moves into another area. All of this is the mystery of life. Actually, the mystery of life is greater than the mystery of death. You sow wheat, what comes up? Well, it's not barley, it's wheat that comes up. And that little grain just like the one you sow. Not identical, but certainly similar. Now, he says all flesh is not the same flesh. There's one kind of flesh of man, another flesh of beasts, fishes, and other birds. Now, the difference between a dead body and a resurrection body is greater than the difference between man and beasts, fish, and birds. 
You see, he was in the area of botany. Now he's in the area of biology and zoology. Then he moves out of that into another area. Verse 40, there are celestial bodies, bodies terrestrial. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. Now, the celestial, I think, is the church. The terrestrial is Israel and the Gentiles. And now we're in the realm of astronomy. And then he says here that there's a glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. One star even differeth from another star in glory. Sun's not the same material as the moon, neither same as the stars. The stars differ from each other. There's a solar system, a stellar system, there are planets and suns. How did Paul know that all of these were different? How did he know that the sun was one thing, the moon was something else, and that they were in our solar system and stars were out yonder, they were something altogether different. One star different from another star in glory. And believe me, they're finding that out today. Now, so also is the resurrection of the dead. Notice what he says. It's sown in corruption. It's raised in incorruption. It's sown a corruptible body. It'll be raised a body that's in incorruption. Now, he goes on to make it very clear here that Adam would not have died, but he'd always been subject to death, you see. But now we get a body that's incorruptible. Now, in verse 43, it's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory, it's sown in weakness, raised in power. And the glory and the color and the beauty and the power and the mind, all of these things with the new body. Now he says, it's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body. There is a spiritual body. Many years ago, way back in the days of old modernism and fundamentalism, modernism never was modern, and it sure isn't today, but a paper was read by a leading liberal in the East at this meeting of the theologians, both at that time modern and fundamental. And one man who read it, he was applauded because he took this verse and he put the emphasis on spiritual. He said it's a natural body, but it's going to be raised spiritual. And he says, you can see that resurrection is spiritual. And after he finished, all the liberals applauded him and thought the paper ought to be published. And then a very outstanding Greek scholar who was there stood up. He was a very conservative man. He said, I want to ask this man a question. And they were all a little lyric because they knew this man knew how to ask questions as well as answer them. And he said, I'd like to ask the man who read the paper... I'd like to ask him which is stronger, a noun or an adjective. Well, there was a silence for a moment. This man answered. Well, he said, a noun, of course. All right, he said, I'm surprised then that you read the paper that you did. You put the emphasis upon the adjective, not the noun. The noun is body. The adjective is natural and spiritual. Now he says it's sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body, and it's the body that is carried over in resurrection. It's just a different kind of a body. That's the important thing Paul is saying, but the resurrection is spiritual. May I say that they never did publish that man's paper. Verse 45 says, So it's written, the first man Adam was made a living soul, the last Adam was made a quickening spirit. 
You see, the first man, Adam, he was psychical. And sukein is the Greek, zosain. That means he was physical and psychological. The last man is spiritual, pneuma, pneumatical, if we want the English equivalent. Howbeit, that was not first, which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward, that which is spiritual. And he goes on, the first man is of the earth. He's earthy, koikos, clay, rubbish, if you please, to talk about the ecology. Who messed up this earth anyway? Man. Because actually, man's earthy. He's rubbish. And what do you expect him to make? Everything that's a refuse of man is rubbish. He can haul in the groceries on Saturday. But I tell you, he'll fill up the garbage can before the week is out. Because man is that kind of a creature, by the way. But the second man, he's the Lord from heaven, as is the earthy. Such are they also that are earthy. Well, we're earthy. That's the condition of all of us. As is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. But also, if we're in Christ, we're joined to him, and therefore, this is our hope, is resurrection, an eternal body, an eternity with Christ. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, which we bear today, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now, we're looking forward to this. Now, listen to him. Now, this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These old bodies we've got are not going to heaven. I'm glad of that. I'd like to trade mine in. They cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Now, he's not saying hocus-pocus over these old bodies, nor is he sending them to a repair shop It's the picture of sowing seed. It's put in the ground a seed that dies. It comes up, not the identical, but that which is similar, and it'll be a new tabernacle for us to live in. Now, that is the reason so many atheists out here on the West Coast, when they die, they have their ashes scattered out here on the Pacific Ocean. In other words, it's a challenge to God to try to get all those atoms back together again. How in the world is God going to get that few, you know, atoms of phosphorus? And he gets a little iron here. You know, there's not really enough phosphorus in us to make the heads on but about two matches. And we talk about somebody being fiery. Couldn't even light a match. And then we talk about, my, he's a strong iron man. Well, there's about enough iron in us to make a ten-penny nail. That's all there is in us. And these bodies, what difference does it make? Now, if he wants to use some other atoms, after all, a hydrogen atom, they're all very much alike. It wouldn't make any difference to me if he used some others to make the new body. I think that's one of the biggest pieces of nonsense. And yet it's been the biggest argument that's been used. How in the world will God get all these atoms together? Well, my friend, he just has plenty of atoms on his hands. And if he made the body to begin with, He can make the other one, and it will come up, these old bodies, coming up out of the grave, but supposed to have been scattered out there on the ocean. They're going to come up out of the ocean, my friend, and he'll be able to bring them together. After all, he's God, isn't he? Now, will you notice verse 50? Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These old bodies are not going to heaven. Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Now, he says, listen to this, behold, I show you a mystery. What's a mystery? 
We've already seen that. He's mentioned it several times. That which was not revealed in the Old Testament, but is now revealed in the New Testament. That which you cannot learn by the eye gate, ear gate, eye hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man. This is not something man would have thought of. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We're not all going down through the doorway of death. But we shall all be changed. Now, whether you die or not, you're going to have to be changed, friends. So many people say, oh, if I'm only alive at the coming of Christ just to go to be in his presence, you're sure going to have to be changed, brother and sister. And I'm going to have to be changed. If he should come right now, we'd have to be changed in a moment. And a moment is the smallest part of time. The word is atomao. In fact, we get our word atom from that. And scientists made a big mistake calling that little fellow the atom because, you see, they thought they'd found the smallest particle of matter. And now today they can cut the little atom up like a railroad restaurant pie, and it's not an atom at all. It's something else. I think the Greek word stoikos, which means building block, would be the best. And Simon Peter uses that in his second epistle, the third chapter. And he wasn't even a scientist. He was a fisherman. But the Spirit of God knew a little about science. Now, we shall not all sleep. We'll all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. And I understand that psychologists have measured the twinkle of an eye. But I ask one of them, well, what is a twinkle of an eye? Is it when it goes down or when it comes up, the lid? Or is it both of them? And I think they've got it broken down to, well, you just break up a second. And a moment, you see, is atomao. Tomao means to cut Atoma means it's something you can't cut, but they've cut up the atom, you see, so that in a moment, in a period of time, you couldn't say, here he comes and here he is. He's here. <laughs> in a moment, in a twinkling of the eye at the last trump. What is that last trump? That's his last call. The trumpet is his voice. John says, I heard a voice like the sound of a trumpet, and I turned to see whose voice was it, the Lord Jesus. This is his last call to mankind. Come on up, he says, for the trumpet shall sound. He'll give his last call. He'll call the dead back. As he said, Lazarus, come forth. He'll say, Vernon, come forth. And he'll call you by name. And the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. This is a tremendous must. You can't go to heaven as you are now. You can't go to heaven with the old body you got. You couldn't see what's really up there, and you couldn't hear the music. <laughs> they tell us today that we don't see everything that's on the sight board, and we don't hear everything's on the sound board. We get very little today. These bodies are quite limited. We are really deaf and dumb as far as heaven is concerned. Even if we went up there like we are, we'd never be able to enjoy the place. We wouldn't know very much about it. We'd miss half that's going to take place. And friends, when I go there, I don't want to miss a thing. And therefore, I'm going to need a new body. This corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality... Then shall be brought the past that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. This is the victory of the resurrection, friends. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, 
Where is thy victory? Now, I feel about physical death like this. I heard a Bible teacher years ago say that he's taken the sting out of death. And he says it's like a bee that has a stinger removed. Well, my feeling is this, that I can't tell when a bee has its stinger removed. I just can't stop every bee and say, look, you got your stinger, you lost it. And therefore, I'm afraid of every bee, with stinger or without stinger. And death has lost its sting, I grant you, because today we're to look way out beyond it. It's a doorway that's opened up the vast regions of eternity and starts us down the hallway, not of time, but of eternity. But I don't like going through that door. Oh, grave, where is thy victory? Now, the grave's not going to get a victory at all. I tell you today, that is the thing that happens to man. Many a man today has been a success as a businessman, but he was really a a failure because death got him. (laughs) May I say, many a politician got elected to high office and many died in high office. We've had several presidents that died in the presidency. They got up there, but, oh, death, you know, got a victory, walked in on them. Death is an awful monster, is it not? But now Christ has been down through that way, just as that ark went down into the Jordan River and over to the other side. Christ has gone down through the waters of death for me, and he tells me, I'm your shepherd. Remember, I not only lead you through this life, I'll lead you through the deep waters of death, and I'll bring you into eternity. So, I'm afraid. I'm a little child. I'm afraid. But I'll put my hand in a hand that's nail-pierced, and he'll lead me to the other side. O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. It's sin that has the real stinger. And the strength of sin is the law. Law is a mirror that shows us we're sinners. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory... How? Because we are smart and clever, and we are overcomers? No, we have the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we are told that they overcame him in Revelation, how by the blood of the Lamb. That's the only way any of us will ever overcome. Now, on the basis of that, he says now, therefore, therefore, I think goes all the way back to the very first chapter. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now, that takes me all the way back to verse 9 of chapter 1. God is faithful. Oh, he's faithful. By whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I've been called into the fellowship of his Son. And Paul has already told me in this epistle, he says that all things are mine. And he said that Paul belongs to me, and we've been studying all about him. He's ours, friends, and Apollos and Cephas, the world today. Oh, I want to enjoy life and death. Oh, death is ours. But we have one that got the victory over death. And isn't this wonderful? Things present, that's things of time, 
things to come out yonder in the future, all things are yours. My friend, why, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Now, may I say to you, up yonder in glory today, the living Christ. I hope you have Christ. He's yours, and he's mine, and the world, and eternity. My father's a king, my friend. He's a king. Now, as we come to our last study, we'll take this entire chapter at one time. It's actually not a very long chapter. Now, there is a very definite, strange relationship between his birth and his death and his resurrection. If he's not who he said he was, then his death is meaningless as far as our salvation is concerned. And his resurrection, you can face it with Paul, if Christ be not raised from the dead. There is a relationship, you see, and it's a very important relationship. When anyone says today, well, I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe in the virgin birth. I do not want to be ugly. I want to be just as nice and sweet and jolly as I can be. But my friend, if you deny the virgin birth, you're not a Christian. Now, somebody says, but you've already said yeah, that the gospel concerns the death, burial, and resurrection. But my friend, who was it that died? Who was it was buried? Who was it that rose again? Now, I believe you can come to Christ and accept him as your Savior and not know anything about the virgin birth. But my friend, when you find out about it, you begin to come to know him. You're not going to deny the virgin birth. You can't, you see. You couldn't deny the virgin birth because you wouldn't really have a Savior. Now, as we come to this 16th chapter, what a letdown. Chapter 16, verse 1. Now, concerning the collection. That's the way Paul began. I did not begin this. He started it. Now, in this chapter, we have uh, patore. That is quite a collection of things. Not only the collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem, but Paul in this chapter will discuss many things, not only concerning the collection, but opportunities and opposition, about watching and praying, about the conduct of the church, and then the acid test of doctrine, and then that which is ecclesiastical. The total church is in view here. Or, if you want it organized and divided, the first four verses concern the collection. Verses 5 through 9 is personal, and Paul here is gloriously unsettled. He's not quite sure just what he's going to do. And that's a great satisfaction to me because it's very difficult to tell about the future. These folk that tell me that are Christians, and especially in Christian service, they're going to tell me what they're going to do and where they'll be five years from today. I'm worried about them because I just never got it that way, and I'd hate to think they've got a private line into the Lord that I know nothing about. And then I read this about Paul not knowing, and it's a great comfort. And then I 
think along with Paul here, and I wonder if these people really know what they're going to do and where they're going to be five years from today. Paul did not know. Now we find that the last part of the chapter, verses 10 through 24, he deals with personalities. These are folk who walk down the streets of Corinth, one of the most corrupt cities, most sensual city, a city given over to immorality. The numerality was even old in Corinth, and they really knew more about it than this generation today knows. But here are folk who walked down the streets of Corinth, and they knew the Lord Jesus. And they live for him. And they could keep themselves unspotted before the world. Now, let's get into the chapter. And I come back. I hope you've recovered from the shock of this first statement. Now, concerning the collection, you would think that after Paul has discussed the resurrection, most glorious doctrine of the Christian faith, you'd think, now, brother Paul, this is wonderful. Let's stay in the clouds. We're in the heavenlies, Paul, and all of a sudden, Paul, well, he just pulls the plug out, as it were. We find out that we've just gone down to the very bottom. He says, now concerning the collection. And there's some pious folk that would say, my, you ought not talk about the collection. These material things we ought not to talk about. And generally, those people don't want you to talk about it because it's a little bit embarrassing for them. Now concerning the collection, that's what Paul says, for the saints, and that's for the poor saints at Jerusalem, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Now Paul's method was this. Now there are people that ask about Christian giving, and I hope you have your Bible and are going to follow right now. And I want you to watch this very carefully because I'm not going to read it right. So you follow it in your Bible. On the Sabbath day, let every one of you give tithes and offerings so that there'll not be an offering when I come. Or we may have to have a special offering when I get there, probably a retiring offering. Now, somebody says, you sure didn't read it like it is. No, I surely didn't, but that's the way it's practiced today. Now, I want you to notice something. This is important, Christian friend. Upon the first day of the week. Now, if you're not going to meet on the first day of the week to worship God, then you want to come back on the first day to make your offering. That's part of worship. Because Paul says here, upon the first day of the week, not on the Sabbath day, this is for the church. It's the first day of the week when the church comes together to remember the Lord Jesus in his death and resurrection. He came back on the first day. Now, he says, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him. Nothing about tithes and offerings. But you to lay by as God has prospered you. Now, how has God prospered you? And Paul says, 
I want you to do this, that there be no gatherings when I come. I do not want my meetings with you spoiled by high-pressure methods of taking up an offering. Paul says, I don't want that. I won't have that. And that's the way today that special meetings are generally carried on, especially evangelistic meetings. I've had to give as much attention to the offering in the past as I've had to do with trying to deal with the new converts. It seems that so much attention is given. Now, Paul just puts it down as it should be done, and it's almost contrary to the way that we do it today. Now, let me say this to you. As God has prospered him, I had an officer in a church in Texas, a man of means. He owned several Coca-Cola plants, and he had the local one in the town where I was. And he owned a ranch, and he and I used to go out to that ranch and hunt and fish. And he always would say to me, Preacher, why don't you preach on tithing? Well, I said, why should I preach on tithing? He says, because it's the Bible way of giving. I said, well, it was the Old Testament way. But I said, under grace, I don't really think it's that way. He said, how do you think it ought to be? I said, God has prospered him. Now, this was during the Depression. I said to him, I said, now, for some strange reasons, Coca-Cola's are selling. You're doing well. But I said, I can mention several members of our church that couldn't give a tithe right now. It's the time of the Depression. Now, some of you people will remember the Depression, or if you're as old as I am. It was a very serious time, and it was a difficult time. And I said, they couldn't give. And I said, I don't think God's asked them to give a tithe. He says, you mean God hasn't asked them to give a tithe? No, I said, as God hath prospered him. That's the way he's to give. And I said, look, I said, you know that these people can't give a tenth. And God's not asking to give a tithe. And I said, there's some people, though, that are doing well. And you know, they're to give as they've been prospered. And they're not to stop with a tenth. They probably ought to give a half. Did you know that that man never did ask me to preach on tithing again? Because he was tithing. But the interesting thing was, he should have been given more. God had prospered him. But God hadn't prospered some other people. And he was wanting me to, you know, to just go after those folks. Well, I wasn't about to do it since it's not scriptural at all. As God has prospered him, and by the way, are you giving as God has prospered you? Quite interesting. Paul says here in verse 3, And when I come, whomsoever ye shall approve by your letters, them will I send to bring your liberality unto Jerusalem. And if it be meet that I go also, they shall go with me. And Paul says, I want you to pick out a committee to take it to Jerusalem with me. And it's well for one man not to be responsible for the offering, not in Christian work. I think one of the most dangerous things today is to turn the offering over to a single individual and let one man handle it. Somebody says, well, don't you think he might be honest? Well, I think the problem is he might not be. That's the problem. If he's honest, there'd be no problem. 
But that's the best way to handle it, and it's a very fine way. And you notice Paul's using business-like methods here. Now, he calls their giving liberality. And he called the collection logios, that's to collect. And now he calls their bounty here, our liberality, he calls it charis. That's the word for grace. And in Romans 15, 26, it's called a contribution. In 2 Corinthians 9, 5, it's called a eulogia. That means a blessing. And in 2 Corinthians 9, 12, it's called a liturgia. And that's a ministration. And in Acts 24, 17, it's called an elimusana. And that means alms. All of this has to do with you giving to the Lord. And you could use any one of these. Now, the interesting thing is, the word bounty here, or liberality, or grace. And it should be grace giving today. How has God blessed you? Could your giving today be considered liberality? And I believe that today, when God has prospered a man, that he should not give just a tenth. I don't mean to put him under law. But if you were to use the Old Testament standard, which was not just one-tenth, if you go back and look at it in my book on Leviticus, I deal with this, there obviously was three-tenths that was given, about 30%. Now, if God required that, and of course government came in for part of that, they were of the theocracy, so that what we have here is something tremendous. Now, this is important, and I've spent a little time with it. Now, notice what he says. Now I will come unto you when I shall pass through Macedonia, for I do pass through Macedonia, and it may be that I will abide ye and winter with you, that ye may bring me on my journey whithersoever I go. I love that. Brother Paul, where are you going? I'm going whithersoever. I don't know. don't know where I'm going. You mean to tell me you're the great apostle of the Gentiles and the Lord didn't give you a blueprint or a road map telling you everywhere you to go? No, he says he didn't. He just leads me along. My, what a glorious thing this is that he has here. We have here the wonderful thing of gloriously unsettled. Now, will you notice, verse 7, For I will not see you now, by the way, but I trust to tarry a while with you, if the Lord permit. Well, Brother Paul, where are you going? Well, I don't know. Now, my plans call for me to go over to Corinth. I'm coming over to see you, Corinthians. That's my plan. But it'll be only if the Lord permits it. Somebody says, shouldn't we have plans? Oh, by all means. Certainly, we should make our plans. But the interesting thing is, always make them amenable to the will of God. Be willing to change them. Be willing to shuffle things around because Paul went out. He was very elastic as he moved out on these missionary journeys. We have seen before how the Lord just practically detoured him on the second missionary journey. He was going down into Asia. And the Spirit of God sent him over to Europe. He didn't know he was going to Europe. He didn't have any visas for Europe at all. He wouldn't have been able to get in there today. But in that day, he didn't need a visa. Now, he says, I'll tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost. 
He says, that's my present plans. And the reason is this, for a great door and effectual is open unto me, and there are many adversaries. This is the wonderful verse that we put with the one in Revelation to the church in Philadelphia. The Lord Jesus said, I've set before you an open door. In radio, that's our ministry today. He set before us an open door. And we have found that a great door and effectual is opened unto us. But this other's true. There are many adversaries. There are many of them. A lot of enemies today to any man that'll stand for the Word of God. May I say to you, they'll try to crucify you. I know that from experience. That's been my experience. May I say to you that they tried to do that to Paul. They've tried to do it to any man that has preached the Word of God. There's a great door, though, and the Lord won't let anybody shut it. Thank God for that. And Paul is there, as it were, gloriously happy, rejoicing in the will of God. And if the Lord wants him to go to Corinth, he'll go. And verse 10, now we come to personalities. I'll just touch these names as we go through. He says, now if Timotheus come... See that he may be with you without fear, for he worketh the work of the Lord, as I also do. Let no man therefore despise him, but conduct him forth in peace, that he may come unto me, for I look for him with the brethren. Now, why would they despise him? Well, Paul told him, you remember, let no one despise your youth. And he tells the church there in Corinth, he's a young man, but he's a preacher of the word of God. Now, verse 12 is touching our brother, Apollos. And I told you Paul loved Apollos. Now, the church had him in opposition, but they were serving the Lord together. Paul says, I greatly desired him to come unto you with the brethren. Paul says, I wanted him to go over to Corinth, but his will was not at all to come at this time. But he will come when he shall have convenient time. He's coming over to see you too. Now he says, watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong. Oh, what a word for this day. Watch, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong. Let all your things be done with love. I beseech you, brethren, you know the house of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaean, that they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. And when I read that word addicted, I was afraid that they'd gone on drugs. But they were addicted to the ministry to the saints. And that was a great ministry. And then he says that ye submit yourselves unto such and to everyone that helpeth with you and laboreth. You submit yourself even to those that want to serve you. Verse 17, he says, I'm glad of the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, for that which was lacking on your part, they've supplied. They apparently brought the letter from the Corinthian church over to Paul. And Paul is telling them in Corinth that they just made up for the whole church. They've been such wonderful fellows. He's a Christian. Verse 18, For they've refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore acknowledge ye them that are such. Give them a vote of thanks when they get back. Now the churches of Asia salute you. Aquila and Priscilla salute you much in the Lord with the church that's in the house. That's where they came to know Christ. All the brethren greet you. 
and greet ye one another with a holy kiss. Now, somebody says that permits kissing. Well, it does if it's a holy kiss. Most of them are not. Now, verse 21, the salutation of me, Paul, with mine own hand. He dictated this epistle in sign. Listen to him now. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha. The Lord Jesus said to Simon Peter, do you love me? Didn't he ask him, would you not deny me anymore? He said, do you love me? And my friend, that's the acid test today. I close on that note. Do you love him? And Paul says, the last thing, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. And if you love the Lord Jesus, you love the saints. Wonderful epistle, is it not? Closes on the high note of love.